Creative Collisions with Second Home. Hello and welcome to Creative Collisions, a new podcast from Second Home, a social business dedicated to promoting creativity and entrepreneurship in cities around the world. Thank you, everyone, for 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 joining us. Um, we are. I'm the I'm Rohan Silver. I'm founder of Second Home, and you know we um, love, Second Home exists to 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 bring about and celebrate the cross pollination between different fields. That's why we create the spaces we do, the cultural programs we do, and and so on is to sort of smash together different industries, different disciplines, different types of people, because we really believe out of those creative collisions, um, you know, it comes great things, joy, love, uh, but also new new businesses, uh, new opportunities, new collaborations. And there is no more second home person, really, than Marcus de Sotoy. Um, so it's a huge honor to have him with us. Uh, Marcus, as all of you tuning in, I'm sure will know, is the Simonyi Professor for the Public Understanding of Science uh, at the University of Oxford, as well as Professor of Mathematics there. He is the author of a bunch of amazing uh, books like uh, The Music of uh, the Primes, which I, I really, really love, um, uh, a, a book on Journey into the Patterns of Nature, which is a very second home kind of book. Um, but is also, you know, a true, true polymath, uh, a musician, a collaborator with you know, playwrights uh, and theatre companies like Complicite, um, and, you know, has has done a huge amount to um, help promote in a really fun and creative way the understanding of mathematics, science, life. Uh, so a huge honour to have Marcus with us. And, and Marcus has written yeah, an amazing new book um, called Thinking Better, The Art of the Shortcut, which I read very excitedly as soon as I got a copy. Please, please do, all of you, uh, if you can, get a copy. Our bookshop, Liberia, in Spitalfields on Hanbury Street, is well-stocked with with Marcus's work, but available from all good bookshops and online sellers everywhere. Let me kick off, Marcus. Thank you again for, uh, for, for, for doing this. Let's um, just, um, uh, uh, there's your book, you know, people tuning in, a second home audience is very diverse and so on. There might be a few actual mathematicians in the audience, but, you know, you, you, you write in this book, um, you know, time and again, a gear change in civilization was affected by the discovery of mathematics. Um, so, so yeah, so, you know, mathematics being this, you know, driver of of civilization. Would you mind just sort of unpacking that? Because uh, I think that is so so important to sort of kick things off and frame, you know, why this stuff matters as much as it does. Yes, it's interesting because um, I, I think that you know this is actually related to what you talked about about cross disciplinary um, nature of second home, and I, I think that's very much. You know, I'm always looking for uh, different narratives to help me tell my mathematical stories. And I've always found a historical narrative um, really helpful to see how mathematics has emerged out of the challenges uh, 
um, that we've been faced in sort of uh, growing uh, our different civilizations. And, and in some sense, the very first mathematics uh, comes from uh, ancient Egypt, ancient Babylon, as these two civilizations start to build um, the city-states around those two great uh, rivers, the Nile and the Euphrates. And, you know, you're beginning to see there the challenge of, okay, well, um, I, I want to build a pyramid, but how many um, how many blocks of stone am I going to need? And so there's a kind of slow way to do that, which is you 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 map it, you know, count them all out, and um, it's going to take you forever. But it was those people who started to see, hey, hold on, that's really inefficient. Um, just counting each layer and seeing how many. Surely there's a, a cleverer way to do this. Um, and those people who are trying to find clever ways to build, to measure, um, started to come up with these kind of shortcuts of thinking. Um, and those shortcuts are really the beginning of mathematics. Um, and so this book is, you know, it's a celebration of mathematics, but a celebration also of mathematics as a tool for being faced with a problem. Uh, and at first sight, it looks just uh, hugely complicated, but stepping back and thinking, hold on, is there a cleverer way to think about this? I suppose even, you know, if you think about even how we write numbers, that's already a really clever shortcut. And you see the difference between um, the Egyptians and the Babylonians there, because the Egyptians uh, were, they had little characters, hieroglyphs for each of their numbers. And as the numbers got larger and larger, they needed to come up with new pictures. So like um, a coil of rope, a little frog, um, actually, I love a million because it's um, a, a little man with his hands in the air as if he's will won a million. Um, but that's really inefficient. And it's something we see in Roman numerals as well. That, um, you know, you've got to come up with different symbols for each time the number gets bigger and bigger. But uh, across the road in uh, Babylon, the they'd realize, hey, hold on. Why don't we just have you know, a fixed number of symbols, but the position of the symbol in a number um, can tell us uh, uh, can tell us something about that number. So, I mean, take my numbers up there: three, five, and seven. So, that actually is a the sort of position three hundred and fifty-seven, for example. Well, we're using just these symbols zero to nine, but I can now use these by using this uh, place value system that the Babylonians came up with, just to make as big a number I want to. So, through this book, I kind of document. Um, different styles of shortcuts that have had sort of transformational moments um, uh, throughout history. For example, uh, the Arab world coming up with algebra. There's an incredible language to be able to talk about patterns in numbers without having to go through all the kind of infant number of examples, a language which distills the grammar of how numbers work. Or the calculus, for example, an amazing tool for finding you know, the most efficient solutions to uh, some sort of dynamic problem, which basically kicked off the Enlightenment and the scientific movement. Um, so I think that very much these shortcuts that I have talked about in this book, the shortcuts we've come up with in mathematics have been game changers throughout history. And, and the, you know, the book is chock full of these incredible stories of, you know, different, different shortcuts. And, you know, we're going to, we're going to jump into sort of a bunch of them. I think one of the things that I think is so interesting about the book, I guess, are, are themes like um, sort of humans versus machines. Because I guess some people listening to this, and indeed, 
me, to be honest, even beginning the book, was thinking, well, yeah, all right, for you poncy mathematicians, I get why you're sort of beavering away at this, but, you know, I'll just pull out my calculator if I want to work anything out, you know? And I think your, your book is really interesting on sort of what it is to be human and, you know, why it is that we should care about this stuff in a, in a machine age. It's so interesting you say that because in some sense, the inspiration for this book came from my previous book, which actually um, we launched at Second Home in Hackney, um, which is about artificial intelligence, the extraordinary uh, sort of um, things it can do in the last kind of decade or five years even with machine learning. And that book looks at, you know, can AI even be creative um, in kind of literature, music, um, visual art, even mathematics? And, um, you know, it's extraordinary. The machine learning really does seem to be fueling uh, um, a heat wave in artificial intelligence. You know, we, we've called, talked about AI winters for decades, and this seems to be a really exciting moment. And I loved writing that book because it just you, it revealed the extraordinary potential of this new tool. But I remember talking to John Harris at The Guardian. Uh, we did an interview together. And by the end of the interview, he said, oh, gosh, it doesn't look like anything left for humanity. Um, mm. And he was so depressed, I sort of had to try and think of something to cheer him up. Um, and uh, well, I said, oh, you know, I, I think there is something which is kind of special about humans' approach to problems. Because you see, uh, as you say, a computer calculator would just, um, you know, if you give it the a, a challenge uh, of some computation, it would just churn through. It doesn't mind doing the hard work. It's not, um, doesn't get tired. But humans are essentially we're quite a lazy bunch at heart, I think. I mean, certainly I was as a teenager. It's one of the reasons I actually liked maths because maths actually is a fantastic tool for the, the lazy person because, you know, if you understand something, then you can avoid doing all this all of this donkey work. So so I kind of said to John, I, well, I think it's our laziness is actually maybe our saving grace. And it, it means that uh, instead of a problem that... Um, looks like it's going to have a lot of work to it. What we do is, is we tend to step back and say, I, I can't be faced, I, I can't do all that hard work. I, I'm going to try and think of a clever way um, to uh, to sidestep the challenge here. And so I think actually our, our laziness has kind of fueled this ability to look for these clever ways of doing things. And the interesting thing is often those clever ways are then the thing which is implemented in a machine. Um, so even if you resort to a machine, very probably you're tapping into the shortcuts that we mathematicians have come up with. Um, so, so this is a sort of uh, complementary book to the Creativity Code, um, celebrating uh, the kind of clever ways that we've come up with. It, there's another thing here, which is because I the title might remind people of another book, um, which is Thinking Fast and Slow, Kahneman's mm, book. Kahneman. Yeah, I think actually they're they will complement each other quite nicely because, I mean, I think that's a great book because what are our sort of go-to shortcuts if you're not a mathematician? It's heuristics. Mm -hmm. We we kind of use just, oh, this data I see around me, I just assume that that data will extend to the um, the, the rest of civilization and, and, and that generally breaks down. So what Kahneman does in that book is to show that our fast thinking, our system one thinking, these kind of um, the easy heuristics, often 
don't get us to the right destination. And he sort of says, no, we've, we've developed this system two thinking, which he calls slow uh, thinking, which is to think more analytically through a problem. I mean, here's a little example for uh, the listeners out there. Um, my book costs £10 plus half its price. How much does the book cost? Now, I think one's fast thinking there is, oh, uh, half, yes, you think half of 10, oh, it's 15. But actually, no, you need to slow down and in some sense, do a little bit of this algebra shortcut to reveal that actually, no, the book costs £20, not £15, but you, you've got to do a little bit more analytical thinking. But I was thinking, actually, that analytic thinking does not have to be slow. It can mm. be, you know, we come up with these very clever, efficient ways of getting to our destination quickly and without too much uh, work. And that is the, the subject of mathematics. There's a, you know, those, those heuristics, obviously, you know, we're born with, you know, I remember I was lucky enough once to interview Daniel Kahneman. I said to him, you've been studying these heuristics, these kind of shortcuts your whole life. Are you now able to kind of transcend them? You know, because uh, as he points out in his book, some of these shortcuts we use can lead us into errors. So I said, have you, can you now kind of avoid those errors? He said, you know what? I can see them coming. Um, but I still, I still make them because it's the way our brains are, wired um and and you know your book you know and another really great theme in the book if, if one of them i think is about sort of humans and, and machines another is about about nature and as, as as you write in the in your new book uh nature was using mathematical shortcuts to solve problems long before we arrived which i think is a really a really great and deep point it's something that we really believe in in second home it's why we integrate nature that kind of whole biophilic thinking is about acknowledging that nature, you know, over the over the course of you know uh, billions of years, uh, has developed incredibly sophisticated solutions to use a kind of you know clumsy term uh, for 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 you know challenges, problems, optimization that benefit all of us. Um, so you know, but but you have some great examples in your book of soap bubbles and bees, Marcus. Yeah. Yeah, great to great to share some of those. Yeah, I mean, it is a sort of um, uh, kind of philosophical idea in in science. Uh, I think it's Morpertius who who said, you know, uh, this idea that's that nature is lazy and and finds these optimal solutions. Um, so, for example, when you blow a bubble, you know, it forms this strange shape but settles on this perfect spherical uh, bubble shape, and that's because. Um, that's the shape which uses the least amount of energy to contain that volume of air. The um, energy required to, to maintain the soap bubble is proportional to the surface area. And, and that, when you uh, analyze mathematically the shapes, that's the, that's the shape with the, the smallest surface area, which contains that um, volume of air. But one of the shortcuts we can use is, is exactly that, tap into the fact that nature is very good at finding these shortcuts. So, there's a beautiful example of this um, Olympic Stadium in Munich, um, built by Fry Otto, and uh, it's a beautiful kind of organic shape. And he actually used soap bubbles in order to design the uh, stadium. So he created this kind of uh, lattice, this skeleton framework, and then he blew bubbles over the framework. And this then formed sheets which uh, 
were basically low energy, you know, low tensile strength uh, was was going to be uh, the most safe way to build the building, but also looked very organic as well because they were from nature. So that's one of our shortcuts is actually tapping into nature. And it's interesting. Fun fun fact, uh, well, to me, fun. The, we have a second home as a location in London Fields in yes. East London. It's got a nursery, childcare in it and stuff. It's a lovely space. The front of that building is inspired by Fry Otto soap bubble experiments. And what's interesting about a lot of his experiments um, were that back in the 50s, 60s, they couldn't actually build a lot of this stuff because actually the material uh, sort of science hadn't got to the point where we could we could mimic these shapes properly. So, um, but but yeah, it's and we have I think on our website various videos of our architects talking about Fry Otto and the inspiration. But yeah, really really interesting because these what's cool about these forms is they're not only mathematically wonderful, they're also incredibly beautiful. And the reason for that perhaps explained by the Harvard biologist Edward O. Wilson, as he put it, we are we're a biological species that co-evolved in a biological world. So it's not surprising that biological forms to us are beautiful, um, which is uh, something we try and try and harness uh, in our in our in our little work here. Absolutely, I think uh, for me that's one of the um, attractions of mathematics because I do feel. Um, mathematics, you know, it's the language of nature. So it's our way of reading and understanding why uh, n- nature looks like it does. So, you know, I I feel that by learning this language, I'm really uh, deeply uh, getting a connection with the, the universe around me. And, but it's interesting, you, I mean, you mentioned the fact that I work a lot with um, different artists as well, like musicians, uh, been doing some theatre today, for example. And, and I think you know, that is actually what we're all involved in, actually, uh, is is creating through different languages, whether it be music or or storytelling, um, is trying to understand the universe around us through our own different languages. And I think that's often why I find such a strong connection um, with people from music, because the structures that they're producing also have this kind of resonance from uh, the, the natural world. So I don't think it's surprising that often, although we seem to have very different languages, at their heart is often the structure which um, has its source in nature. Um, the so let's 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 dive into you know some of the the great sort of stories uh, in in the book. Um, and you know there's the the. That one of the kind of heroes of the book, in fact, I think you actually describe him as the hero of the book, is Carl Friedrich Gauss. I hope I'm sort of saying his, my, my journey. Yes, definitely. Um, and, you know, but he is a kid, a uh, very precocious uh, young man, um, you know, came up with a really interesting kind of shortcut when he was given a, a question by his teachers, I guess, a teacher, I guess, to keep the kids busy for an hour. Um, which, and that's really the sort of front door in this, yes. in this book into the power and beauty of shortcuts. Yeah, Would let me tell that, that story because it, yeah. it is just such oh, a great, yeah. and, and any mathematicians out there will know exactly what story I'm about to tell. Um, but it was also, for me, you know, absolutely, you say it's, it's the front door uh, into this world of shortcuts in the book, but it's also the front door for me because it was a story that my teacher told uh, our class, which kind of really made me realise the power of mathematics. So the, the challenge was, the teacher said, um, okay, class, add up the numbers from one to a hundred. 
So this perfectly for me captures um, the two ways you can do this. There's the long way. You can start one plus two, that's three, plus another three, that's six, plus four, that's 10. That is going to take you a long time, probably make some errors on the way. Uh, so that's the long way. And that's what most of the class are setting off on that uh, path to the destination. But Gauss, even before the teacher had finished asking the question, had written down a number on his little slate board, put it down in front of the teacher and um, had finished the problem. And the teacher thought he was being cheeky, but looked, there was the correct answer, 5,050. So he asked Gauss, well, how did you come up with that so quickly? And he said, well, there's a shortcut because instead of the all my other students, fellow students are beginning at the, the beginning and just walking through the numbers, I decided to combine the beginning and the end of the journey. So I did one plus 100, well, that's 101. Two plus 99, that's also 101. Three plus 98, also 101. So he recognized that by combining the beginning and the end of the journeys, you, you've got 50 pairs of 101. And so that's uh, 50 times 101, 5,050. Then um, the beauty of this shortcut is once you've spotted that kind of pattern, even if the teacher said, okay, well, I'll, I'll give you an even harder problem. What about one to a million? Um, the same trick works. So it's almost like once you've dug that tunnel and seen the clever way to do it, um, it just means that everybody else after then, uh, even if the mountain gets taller, you can still get through to the other side. Um, so I, I thought that was just extraordinary when I saw that as a kid. Um, and my math teacher at my comprehensive school said, well, that's what mathematics is about. It's this art of the shortcut, finding these clever ways to do things. And what I'm going to do over my five years of teaching you at school is to equip you with all these clever ways that we've come up with of, of thinking about strategies to, to solve problems. So um, I thought, yeah, that, that's the subject for me. And as you say, I, Gauss starts the, the kind of story of the book. And um, uh, it's interesting, the challenge of writing one of these books sometimes is to find the, the sort of narrative which connects all of the, you know, many interesting, but sometimes uh, 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 kind of disparate stories. And for me, every time I was telling another style of shortcuts, it's basically kind of like 10 shortcuts through the book, which uh, um, uh, form the body of the book, I kept on finding Gauss there. He was there with um, a statistical shortcut, people Gaussian distribution. That's a kind of shortcut to understanding distribution of data. Geometry, uh, There, he's there again, finding this amazing new geometries, which seems like light in our universe is using bendy geometries in order to get to destinations quickly. So I thought, oh, that's great. I'll make him a sort of Candide figure that he's our companion um, through the book uh, uh, from this very early story of him as a precocious student right through to his last days. So, and I sort of celebrate him as, you know, the um, the, the kind of hero of the book, you know, he's the, um, the master shortcutter. Yeah, it works. It works so well, mate. I think it's such a good, such a great structure you've you've alighted on. And um, the what's also really cool about it is um, what I found really sort of surprising and sort of revelatory in the book is how, as you're looking at each sort of shortcut, you um, understand how some of the previous shortcuts you've learned connect to some of these other things. And a really good example of that. This might you're you're the professor of the public understanding of science. You might be going to explain this stuff. But to me, one of the kind of great revelations was this connection between a sort of mathematical question, the kind of stuff maybe you're said at school, I certainly was, 
How many ways are there to climb a flight of steps if you use a combination of one or two steps, right? That's definitely the kind of math challenge I was doing as a kid. Um, but you draw a connection to that uh, from that to the Fibonacci sequence, which actually Nicole, uh, who's, who's tuning in, has actually um, said, uh, you know, as, as, as raised in the in the chat. Yeah, uh, but that connection is a really beautiful one, and also you also then bring in Indian tabla players too, and these things in the way you write, they're all sort of interconnected. I wonder if there's a way of for everyone tuning in to try and sort of draw some of those sort of connections for them in, um, you know, so they get a sense of, of this kind of yeah. stuff and the beauty of some of these applications of, of shortcuts. Yes. I, I mean, I th it is one of the uh, powerful things about mathematics is understanding that you, you know, many different scenarios actually might have the same underlying structure. So if you understand that, that's a shortcut to understanding all of these things, um, the way nature grows things uh, in spirals and uh, flowers, um, uh, the understanding rhythms in tabla music or um, this challenge of how to get to the top of the stairs. So um, and so that's uh, one of the other tricks I did was to start every um, chapter with a little challenge and uh, and the so, you know, I, I always believe that mathematics isn't a spectator sport. It's really fun to try and challenge yourself. And then when it reveals the shortcuts to you, then then you appreciate it much more because it's, um, oh, that's how you solve this problem. So uh, the uh, let, let me let just sh show you the connection between the climbing the stairs. So you can climb the stairs in one or two steps. So how many different ways? I mean, I've got some stairs in my house, which are like 10 stairs. So how many ways are there to get to the, the top. Um, why is that the same as, for example, the challenge of a tabla player um, in music? Well, tabla players um, combine long and short beats. So if they've got a sort of 10-beat um, uh, uh, kind of piece of music they're trying to fill with a rhythm, the long and short beats are a bit like the one step or two step in climbing the stairs. So you've already got a connection there. And then you say, well, okay, these Fibonacci numbers, what have they got to do with it? Well, uh, the Fibonacci numbers, uh, Fibonacci discovered were all over the natural world. And they're a sequence that goes one, one, two, three, five, eight, 13. And there's a rule to get to the next one, which is you add the two previous numbers together to get the next one in the sequence. So um, these seem to be how nature grows things. You can do, view these numbers rather uh, sort of geometrically and you sort of see this thing building up. So why are those numbers the numbers that are key to this rhythms and the climbing the stairs? Well, if you think about, uh, suppose I've got the rhythms up to sort of five beats and I want to go to the, how many rhythms can I make with six beats? Well, I can take the five beat rhythms and add a short beat to those or the four beat rhythms and add a long beat to those. So um, it's the combination of the two previous rhythms, which tell you how many rhythms you're going to get um, uh, when you add an extra extra beat. So you sort of see the Fibonacci rule emerging as you try and build the rhythms from what you've seen before. So this is amazing because, you know, here we have, once you understand these numbers, you'll first understand how nature grows things. Secondly, you understand what rhythms are possible. Thirdly, you can have fun climbing your stairs in your house in all of these different ways. But, um, but for me, that's, that's the key. Mathematics is about abstracting structure such that actually, uh, for example, there's a whole chapter on, on networks. And 
of course, networks are everywhere. Networks are controlling the internet. They're controlling our friendship uh, groups. They're controlling the neurons in our brain. Um, If you understand something about those networks, it might apply to uh, something you can tell about the internet or the brain or your friendships. So the classic one is uh, people probably heard the six degrees of separation I mean, it's interesting. Uh, probably you've got people from all over the world, hopefully dialing in. If we choose two at random, um, we should be able to find a connection of friends from from one, the first person we chose to the second um, with just six friendship links. Now, that's extraordinary. You know, there, well, there's seven billion people in the world, yet somehow you can get from one person to another in that network with just set six links of friends. Um, and this is a property of the kind of friendship network, which we call a small world network, which it seems that if you think about your friends, you have kind of, most of your friends are in your local environment, but then you have a few global friends, you know, Ron, you're, you're, you're out there in LA. You're one of my friends who's kind of on the other yeah. side of the world. Yeah. Um, but this network that we've created with lots of local connections um, and a few global ones creates a network which has this ability to get from one place in, in it to the other in just these six short steps. And we think that maybe the brain is also tapping into this, that the brain is wired up with a lot of local neuronal connections um, and a few global uh, connections across the, the brain. But that means that a, one neuron can talk to another with just sort of six synaptic connections. That that's amazing. So here's a shortcut. If you're making a network and you want to create that network, whatever it is, to make sure that two points in the network can be connected together very quickly, then all you need to do is to create these few global connections and lots of local, and you'll have this small world network, which you can efficiently get from one place in the network to the other. Um, so, so there again, you know, this thing applies to so many different um, scenarios, the internet, the brain, friendships. Yeah. Yet, uh, you know, it's the same idea hiding behind all of them. No, and look, it, it, it is subconsciously and a tiny bit consciously as well why with Second Home, we're all about bringing people together, uh, enabling people to tap into networks, ecosystems that can help support their creativity, entrepreneurship, growth. It's why we have a bunch in London and then these nodes out in Lisbon, LA, et cetera, allowing you to efficiently, hopefully, tap into a broader community that can, in turn, help your work. So it really, that that is one that is sort of partly conscious, mostly unconscious. But, you know, we are biological beings. You know, it's not surprising that the patterns of our behavior, uh, to some extent, sort of correspond to some of these underlying patterns that Marcus is able, thanks to his brain and mathematics, to, to sort of chart and uh, and and explain. Um, so, and on, on those, you know, uh, there's a great, great section in the book talking about cities, cities being a sort of example of a, you know, a big, big network. And, you know, you make a great point about, you know, what happens when numbers in cities, well, there's a great pattern of, on patents, um, which might be, might be great to, which I'd never seen before, actually. And what happens when you double the population of a city? What happens to other numbers that you might be interested yeah. in? Yeah. Yeah. This you know, is an extraordinary innovation. Yeah. 
Yeah, this is the power. I mean, I would say one of the most important pattern, uh, uh, one of the most important shortcuts that we developed in mathematics is the ability to look for a pattern. Um, so rather than patent, uh, a pattern, because um, if you can spot a, a sort of pattern in your numbers, then it, it, it gives you the chance to look at the data as it sort of grows or goes into the future. Um, and that that gives you a very powerful tool. Now, this pattern is really amazing because, um, so, you know, you count, for example, the number of patents, um, you know, so that's a measure of creativity of a city, you know, some measure of creativity. So you might think, well, okay, in a city with a million uh, people, maybe there are a hundred patents, um, then you'd expect in a city of two million, well, why should it be any different? You'll get 200 patents. But but it turns out that isn't the case. The, the pattern is slightly different. Every time you double the city size, um, you seem to get an extra 15%. So you get like 215 patterns, and then you uh, double again, and, and it goes up by another 15%. And, and this is very striking. And what, again, is this very... Uh, this seems to apply to everything. You know, for example, restaurants, uh, the restaurants, number of restaurants you have or the number of cinemas um, uh, seems to scale up. Um, even your salary, this is most striking. You know, uh, you, the person doing a job in the city with a million uh, citizens, if you compare them to the, the person doing exactly the same job in the two million, um, the person in the two million uh, inhabitant city is earning 15% more than the person doing the job in the 1 million. So, you know, it's worth knowing this pattern. Um, and But it seems to be independent of the structure of the city. Because you might say, well, come on, cities are very different. Surely it depends on Manhattan is, you know, small but tall. Um, LA is sprawled out uh, flat. London is a different kind of shape. Uh, Beijing, different again. Uh, Chicago's got bounded by the river, the lake. Surely this should make an effect on all of these numbers. And it turns out it doesn't seem to. So that, again, is this power of abstracting and seeing that somehow the geography of the city doesn't seem to be so important. But again, it, actually what it comes down to it is the nature of the network connection of people in that city. And it seems like, um, you know, again, it's this kind of, uh, it's not just your local neighborhood, but you know a few people across the city. And that seems to, to, to cause this scaling up in this very uniform way. And the person who discovered it, actually um, a friend of mine, Jeffrey West, um, he'd actually started by looking at biology and understanding the same sort of thing happens when you look at animals being scaled up. Uh, that there seems to be a similar um, sort of scaling law. Um, the remarkable fact about animals, for example, that uh, our hearts seem to beat the same number of beats in a lifetime, regardless of the size of the animal. It's just that a mouse, for example, their heart beats much faster. And so they get through their um, billion heartbeats or something um, much quicker than we do. Um, whilst some animals that live longer than us have a slower heart, but we seem to all have the same number of heartbeats. There's something that, that um, he kind of discovered uh, through that analysis. But but I think that's um, a really striking sort of observation about the, the nature of cities. And it actually implies that perhaps, you know, we sort of traditionally feel in this e ecologically conscious world that surely cities are bad for us. But it turns out that may not be the case. It may be that large cities actually are, are greener in some way, because often you're... Uh, 
sometimes you get 15% more of things, but some, often you get 15% more efficiency, for example, in the amount of um, uh, electric wiring that's needed or gas pipes or something like that, that you actually need less for a larger population. It isn't just doubling up. So th- there's a kind of strange uh, kind of counterintuitive that maybe cities are are good for us. Yeah. And look, without, without sort of pulling you too far into public health, uh, although, you know, having the brain you've got and the polymath outlook, I know you, you're interested in every topic. You know, what really struck me rereading um, or looking looking back at the city section of the of the book uh, in this moment now, in this sort of strange pandemic, post-pandemic moment. There is a lot of talk, obviously. Uh, Second Home fundamentally provides spaces for people to work and collaborate in person. Uh, but a lot of talk right now about remote work and people being able to work from anywhere, sort of freed from the city, people sort of escaping London, moving to the countryside and so on. You know, I wonder what this sort of, you know, mathematical outlook, um, you know, from from your from your friend at the Santa Fe Institute, might say about the consequence of that for innovation, because there is this view right now that Zoom, who needs to meet in person anymore? We've got Zoom, we've got email, who needs it? But actually, there is you know, this this uh, network theory and, and so on would suggest there are there is something that particular that happens when people are bumping into each other in serendipitous ways in dense urban environments. But I say, perhaps what it is saying is that, um, you know, this hybrid world that we're moving into uh, may well be the perfect combination because it will help us. To cr- I mean, I think there's something very exciting about doing these uh, Zoom events that we're actually accessing people from all the way around the world that uh, you know, the last time I did our event together on the previous book about AI, we were all down in Hackney, but it, it sort of limited the access for people because you had to be around in London. Or um, So I think there's something really exciting um, about this new world where we can get reach new audiences. But, you know, there's still something about the physicality of being present with somebody and the serendipity of uh, talking to somebody after the event. You know, it's it's sort of tragic that when this Zoom call ends, uh, you know, we'll all close down and we'll all go our different ways. You know, there's the chat going on and people are having a chance, but there's something how, you know, you you can't sort of substitute that um, uh, embodied uh, feeling and and that's really interesting because embodiment was one of the challenges for shortcuts because um, in the book one of the other features of the book is that I uh, talk to uh, people from different professions about whether they have shortcuts in their own professions. I was quite interested and in whether if they did were they things I recognise in mathematics or if they didn't why didn't they? Um, so for example, I talked to Natalie Klein, a cellist. Um, I'm trying to learn the cello at the moment. I would love some shortcuts to be able to play, you know, the Bach suites really well. Um, and she said, well, I, I don't think there are really shortcuts because you're you're changing your body. You are, by practicing, you're kind of getting a muscle memory to be able to play those things faster than you can sort of consciously think about the notes. And, and, and that just takes time. And that anything which involved so, sort of changing the body I talked to some psychologists. There, there are some amazing shortcuts in psychology, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, you, you know, it's, it's like looking at your algorithm, seeing the faulty bit. Okay, you can intervene every time you get to that bit of the thought process. You can help t- 
to avoid being spiraling into depression. But there are some psychological uh, states where uh, I talked to Susie Orbach and she described it nicely. She said, sometimes it's not, you know, learning a language is difficult, but unlearning a language, unlearning your native language, that's almost impossible. And it requires a lot of time to kind of rewire the brain. And so, so I think that those things where we need embodiment um, are often the places where it's very hard to create shortcuts. And actually talking about the pandemic, that's a, that's a very interesting one because, you know, we would love to have, we were amazing that we produced a vaccine in a year. That is still extraordinary, but it's still, it needed some time to see, um, okay, what effect is this going to have on people? We can't, do it in a week. We have to spend months uh, giving people the vaccine to see what the effect is, whether it counters the virus. And it's, again, it's, with medicine, it's quite hard sometimes to, to shortcut um, what the effect will be. And, and it was amazing we did it in a year, but um, but there are kind of moves to use like uh, artificial intelligence and, and modeling the body. So you could run an experiment sort of in in very fast time on a computer to see what's the effect would be on a sort of cellular makeup uh, over a year. You could probably do that in five minutes on a supercomputer. So maybe there are ways we'll be able to speed up even embodied things, man. Mm, amazing. Well, look, um, I could and probably will um, bombard questions, uh, markets with questions for the next five hours. Um, but we, uh, we've had loads of great questions posted on the Q and a, please do keep posting them. Um, I'm going to start turning to them now, if, uh, if that's okay. Uh, so many great points. So yeah, please do post questions, Q and a, or, or in the chat if you'd like to, but, uh, Q and a is, uh, super helpful for me. Um, there's a really great uh, provocative question from an anonymous attendee, uh, probably someone that knows me, given his question. He wrote, can you explain the difference between shortcutters and bullshitters? Uh, forgive my language. I'm just reading out the question. I find very often they're the same person. Um, what's 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 your... Uh... <laughs> because, you know, there is clearly, with shortcuts, I guess, there can be a risk, not following the rules in your book, but you, it leads to imprecision. Uh, yes. It's a kind of crude, you know, as, as with your Kahneman example, you know, that kind of shortcut well, as in a sort of sudden answer maybe isn't, isn't, isn't sort of right. So yes, there's something about the language of shortcuts that maybe does tip into this sort of actually not doing things very precisely or accurately. Absolutely. Uh, and I address that right out of the beginning because shortcuts sometimes has rather a pejorative sound to it. And it sounds like cutting corners. Yeah. Um, so I make very clear that I'm not um, giving you uh, things which are cutting corners and therefore I'm going to get you to build a house which will fall down in five years, but I've, I've, I've buggered off, you know. So um, no, these shortcuts are, are the ones that can be kind of verified to get you to your goal um, at, in successfully. And so absolutely, I don't want... Um, uh, I want shortcuts which are going to realize your goal without um, uh, the kind of uh, cutting the corners. However, sometimes the, the shortcuts do involve saying, hey, look, I don't need to know all the detail. And so that's a real art um, is saying in this situation, all of this other stuff is unimportant to solving this problem. And one of the shortcuts I uh, talk about in the book is the power of a diagram. Now, a diagram very often is about throwing away uh, information which isn't important. 
If you think about a diagram I use every day here in London is the London Underground map. The London Underground map just tells me how the uh, stations are connected together. It doesn't tell me anything about the uh, the geometry. So I don't know how long, you know, getting from Caledonian Road to King's Cross, it looks the same amount of time as uh, Covent Garden to, to Leicester Square. But actually, uh, that's not important. I just need to know how the thing's connected together. So this is a new sort of geometry called topology, which is saying, I, I can throw away distances. They're not important. Um, so I think sometimes, uh, you know, these shortcuts are about saying, I don't need to know all this detail. Um, I'm going to crystallize the essential quality of the problem. Um, but I think coming back to the bullshitting um, uh, challenge, uh, the power of mathematics is that, yes, yeah, so, so, I mean, there is a, a challenge because if somebody comes along with uh, mathematical tools and you don't understand them, you, you could be taken for a ride by this person. You're not quite sure. So that's one of the reasons I think you know, my job is all about empowering people to make a judgment call on is this bullshit or actually is this um, pr proposal that they're making of, of that is going to tell me the most efficient way to do something, um, uh, you know, really correct. But but we, you know, we have the backup of, of mathematical proof to be able to show, no, this in every situation, this is going to be able to get you correctly to your solution. So, so I think... Um, but partly the book is giving you the tools to be able to assess um, whether this person uh, really is giving you a genuine shortcut or not. Yeah. Well, look, great, great question, uh, Anonymous. Um, lots, lots of other, you know, fantastic questions too. Um, and and post uh, Pamela Thompson. Um, Hi, Marcus. You're a celebrity in my mathematics for elementary primary school teachers course at the college where I teach. Um, pleasure hearing you speak tonight. Um, uh, 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 what are some thoughts, comments you might have for educators who teach mathematics to primary uh, teachers? Um, and also, uh, yeah, uh, Ben Redman also says, um, what makes for an inspiring uh, teacher? Yeah, well, I, I, I tell you, actually, one advantage primary school has is that um, very often the teacher is teaching across different uh, subject disciplines. So the same teacher will be teaching you history, will be teaching you music, maybe mathematics, English. Um, and that actually gives you the power to tap into stories coming from other areas and show those connections. Um, and it, so I think actually, for me, that often is what gets somebody excited, seeing that uh, mathematics is popping up in the natural world. So going out and counting the number of petals on flowers and seeing that they're Fibonacci numbers or something like that. And actually, I wish we could take that through to secondary school level, where unfortunately that's when our uh, we, we become very siloed in our kind of uh, education process. So people go from the maths class to the music class to the history class and don't realise there's a connection between all of these. So, so for me, um, it, it, everybody is individual and they all have different ways that they find things exciting. And it's about showing that mathematics connected to, to all of those. Um, but one other thing for primary school is actually coming back to this idea of embodiment. So um, you mentioned that I do a lot of work with theatre companies and in particular Complicite. And I did um, a project 
about a wonderful story of Hardy and Ramanujan called A Disappearing Number. But we grew out of that actually some uh, workshops for teachers, um, theatre teachers and maths teachers, to try and help kids understand the kind of mathematics in a much more embodied way. And eventually it led to a project called Embodying Maths, um, which we aimed actually specifically at primary school. Um, and it's the trying to get the class to 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 feel what it means to be divisible by two, divisible by three, to be a prime number. And you can use some very nice kind of rhythm games and music games, um, which helps a kid who uh, maybe abstractly finds it very difficult to negotiate mathematics. But once it's in a kind of game where you're maybe clapping or singing um, and, and embodying the maths, it, it seems to really help the students. So, so I'd recommend the certainly the primary school teacher to maybe have a look at uh, the Embodying Maths project as a, as a way of using kind of theatre and music to help mathematics. Yeah, I, I, I first met Marcus. I dragged my then girlfriend, luckily now wife, uh, to a uh, early morning, I think Saturday morning talk at the Royal Society in London. And, you know, Marcus had us, um, I'm not going to describe it brilliantly, but had the group, the, the audience, uh, sort of try and form an equilateral triangle with two other people in the audience. And, you know, we were all moving around. And the point was that this actually never quite reached equilibrium. You think that you've all joined up in equilateral triangles, and some, suddenly someone moves a bit and everyone starts sort of adjusting. It's like beautiful dance and play uh, and, and, and choreography out of a very simple mathematical input. It's so funny. I just did that exercise today with a, a, a group of students at Queen Mary College. Um, and it's the idea that, you know, quite a lot of nice, simple algorithms, if you implement them in kind of theatre or dance context, give rise to some kind of beautiful complexity. It's, a, it's an amazing, amazing thing. Um, loads of ex, loads of great questions. Please do keep them coming. We've got, you know, about eight more minutes. So um, Deborah Moody, a Brit living in Kashkais in uh, just outside Lisbon, uh, very luckily, um, has written, shortcuts are often based on a need for a quick solution. So how much is logic and experience necessary, uh, for us humans anyway, to achieve a shortcut? Well, that... There's a lot in that question, actually. I mean, first of all, um, yeah, one of the great things is that, you know, we come up this with this suite of shortcuts and it's a bit like, um, you know, I talk about the, this new tunnel uh, through the Alps, which it took 17 years to, to, to carve out, but it now just takes us 17 minutes on the train to get through it. Um, and that's one, one thing we should uh, exploit is that we don't want to reinvent the wheel. So this this book is kind of your shortcut to all the shortcuts that we've come up with uh, over 2000 years. But there's an interesting challenge here because just like that tunnel underneath the Alps, it takes a long time to create that shortcut. And that's, you know, my job as a, a research mathematician is trying to come up with new clever ways of thinking about things. And the sort of strange paradox in the book that appeared is that trying to find these shortcuts for the first time actually can take you a long, long time and, and, and be quite hard work. So, um, you know, sometimes people ask me, what's the shortcuts to finding shortcuts? And then I say, oh, I don't think there, there is a necessarily a shortcut to finding the, you know, that's um, often the shortcuts come from a long time spent trying to find that clever way to avoid the hard work. So, but it, it's another interesting um, uh, thing that comes out of that because, you know, I enjoy my work. I, I'm, you know, I was a lazy teenager, but actually, I really enjoy uh, sitting at my desk doing my mathematics. And, um, and the point about these shortcuts is 
not to stop you doing, you know, what's the point about going for a walk in nature? You don't want to shortcut that because you enjoy the walk. So my shortcuts are trying to help you to, to get to the place where you can then do the things you love doing and spend the time. Uh, and then you don't mind spending the time uh, doing those things. So, I mean, Aristotle had it rather nicely. There's kind of proesis work for a goal. Those are the ones you want shortcuts for because you're just interested in the goal. And praxis, the, the joy of doing the practice, the, the, the work itself, then you don't want a shortcut to that. Um, you know, I talked to Robert McFarlane about walking and he says, well, I could get a, you know, a helicopter to the, to the top of uh, a mountain, but that defeats the object. I want to take three days to get to the top. That's the joy. Um, the really great question, um, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing your first name, uh, from Aya, um, who, who writes, uh, Marcus, do you have any insights into the kinds of diversity that are important to build into networks? or ways that diversity is important in building resilient groups and organizations? It's a great, it's a very second home question. So thank you. Yes. Uh, asking it. Yes. Uh, that That's very interesting because, um, you know, that sort of comes into uh, the data um, shortcuts. You know, we come up with fantastic tools, you know, if you've got um, 7 million people and you're trying to assess what's going on in this uh, data set, then, you know, statistics says actually you, can take quite a small sample of that 7 million to, to get some insight. But one of the important things is making sure um, you have, you, you make sure you aren't biasing your sample. And, and, you know, we're seeing this quite a lot in machine learning that unfortunately the data that's being given to machine learning to learn on is often not diverse enough. And, and therefore we're getting um, a very sort of prejudiced kind of machine learning out the other side. And this is one of the other shortcuts I talk about. It's the wisdom of the crowd. Um, you know, sometimes the clever thing is not to try and work yourself, but to use the crowd to try and help you. And um, uh, so it's a very interesting question. You know, when it, when is the crowd wise and when is the crowd actually not somebody you want to uh, approach? Maybe you need an expert. So, you know, you wouldn't want to, uh, use the crowd to fly an aeroplane. You know, I'd rather trust the pilot who's, um, you know, an expert rather than saying, okay, well, let's get all the passengers to collectively try and decide how to fly this plane. But but then on the other hand, there are some problems where um, uh, using the crowd and especially including a sort of diversity in there is very powerful. And one of them is uh, participatory budgeting. I think this is really exciting. We're seeing, um, you know, that. Uh, relying on kind of economic decisions with just a few people that have been elected often you know that narrowness often leads to very bad decision making process and so there's a new kind of um, idea in economics that you you bring together um a, a diverse crowd and that's important as well you know i think in iceland they tried this but they they invited people to apply and only people with very sort of prejudiced ideas applied and whilst in canada they said they actually sent out letters arbitrarily to many people and it was a bit like jury service that it was a a civic obligation that you turn up and participate in this but and then it was very successful because they managed to get a much more diverse um range of people coming in uh by doing that method so i think especially in something like when you're using the wisdom of the crowd um diversification is ab absolutely key to a wise crowd we're almost out of time i'm going to um i'm going to just throw a few, couple of questions at you marcus uh for um, one from uh, Kate Brundrett, um, uh, 
Uh, really enjoying this conversation. Thank you, Kate. Uh, tell me, who should I buy the book for for Christmas? Are my kids too young? They're nine and 11. My artistic pal, she she asked, or is it for mathematicians? Definitely not, because I loved it. Uh, or everyday creative bods like myself? Um, I certainly think um, very much for creative bods like yourself. I think these tools will be really powerful in thinking in new ways of challenges. Um, uh, you know, one of the most popular courses at St. Martin's School of Art and Design is a maths course. Um, for kids, for um, like your kind of, early teenage kids, I would actually recommend a previous book that I wrote called The Number Mysteries, which actually grew out of the Christmas lectures I did for children. And that's kind of more fun stories that I think will appeal to them. Uh, creative types as well, I think will enjoy the creativity code because that's about you know the power of machine learning as a, a, a new collaborator in being creative. Great. Okay. And, uh, you know, last uh, sort of, you know, couple of uh, last sort of couple of questions, really. Um, uh, there is um, uh, a question about um, practical examples. This is from Nicole. Um, are there examples of shortcuts we can use in our daily routine in the working environment? I guess in our in our working day. It's a broad, broad question, but you know, and that sort of practical application that people might might take away. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think that uh, was very important to me in the book. So I think you'll find that, you know, there are, um, you know, nice historical stories of maths, but um, in the book, I, I keep on trying to bring it back to, to things which uh, might be uh, helpful in your everyday life. So um, yeah, definitely. Um, that was one of the things that w w this was meant to be a, a book to help you think better. Yeah, well, it definitely, it definitely does that. I'm conscious of of time. Um, so many great sort of questions uh, from, from all of you. Thank you so much for, for doing that, uh, for, for posting comments and questions throughout. Um, all I want to say to everyone tuning in is, is please, please do buy The Art of the Shortcut. It really is revelatory. You know, these stories of mathematics are just fascinating to kind of read. And there's so much in there. But, you know, there's so much about entrepreneurial Thinking. There's a great section featuring uh, Brent Hoberman, founder of Founders Forum and Founders Factory, for example, and the relationship between shortcuts and entrepreneurial thinking, which I think will be very relevant to lots of you tuning in. Um, so much in this book. It is it is really wonderful. So please, please do you know pick up a copy wherever you can. Uh, the art of uh, shortcut thinking better. Um, uh, uh, and uh, but. You know, I really want to say, you know, a huge, huge thank you to Marcus for taking the time to do this, for being so sort of tireless in, you know, proselytizing on behalf of mathematics, of science, of, uh, of, 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 of thinking about the world in creative ways. Um, you know, such a pleasure. And as I say, Second Home, this is what we're all about. We're all about these creative collisions, this kind of serendipitous uh, encounters and trying to connect the dots between fields and disciplines and industries that perhaps uh, people hadn't thought of connecting the dots before. And we think this is quintessentially what is human uh, in this kind of race against the machine. This way of thinking that Marcus so beautifully has in his books, to me, are such an important kind of ingredient in our um, economic and sort of social future, frankly. Um, so anyway, Marcus, thank you so much for writing such a great book and for, for being here this evening. People like Pamela Thompson are writing, you are our mathematics hero. I assume oh. that's for you, not me. Thank you, Pamela. 
wasn't clear from the comment. I'll take it if uh, if it was directed. Right. Uh, <laughs> but listen, thank you all so much for yeah, uh, thank uh, you. tuning in. Big thank you to India and the team at Second Home for making this happen, uh, and, and Maria. But Marcus, thank you so much, mate. Really appreciate it. And yeah, th- thanks. A lo- really fun conversation. Look forward thanks, to seeing you in LA. <laughs> all right. Take care, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. Good, have a good day. Have a good evening. Great. Bye. Bye. Bye.